One of the great joys of growing old is having grandkids. <clears throat> and kids say the darndest things, right? They, they often surprise us. They're, it's in a way the questions they ask are so transparently obvious that polite company would never ask those questions. You know, when my uh, five-year-old grandniece was looking into my 99-year-old father-in-law's face and he got right up next to him and asked him a very simple question. Do you ever brush your teeth? You know, <laughs> That kind of honesty is sometimes hard to deal with, you know. But recently, my five-year-old grandson asked his mother a deeply theological question. He said, how old do you have to be to die? Well, she responded by noting that his great-grandfather was already 99 years of age. And so he said, well, how old are you? And she said, 39. He said, oh, good. Then I've got time. As I was thinking about this, I thought this is uh, one of the first of many conclusions that he's going to draw in life that he's going to find are absolutely incorrect. I think most of us, when we look at our life, we think in terms of how much time we have left. And according to what I've read recently from statisticians, that basically every one of us has 4,000 weekends in a lifetime, which means, as I figured it out, that I have about four and a half years to live. Now, whether that's true or not, I can't say because we always see death as being a distant a journey, a, a thing that's far off in our future, except when you get to certain points or you're suffering from certain illnesses, you begin to recognize that it's only a matter of time. And time itself is this strange concept because we almost think about time as being some kind of eternal thing. I, I think about the song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, and it has a chorus that says, when we've been there, speaking of heaven, for 10,000 years, we will only have begun, first begun. Well, the idea of 10,000 years in heaven is kind of not really correct theologically or even scientifically because the idea of eternity is a place where time does not exist. That what enters into eternity remains that way because what time does is it gives us permission to change. I used to think that time was my enemy. It's marching against me. It's ticking out the hours of my life. And when I was 16, it seemed like I would never get to the point where I'd get my driver's license. A month or two seemed an eon away. But suddenly, when I get to this point of 72, you realize that clocks have begun to run much more quickly than they did when we were younger. That as someone once said, I took my clock and now I use it for a fan because it spins so fast, right? But even within that concept, there's an assumption that time inter interacts with each of us equally. It does it so fairly so that when we say the average age of an American at death is 76.9 years, but we realize that there's many who fall short of ever reaching that moment, especially in an era like this last year where we had the highest death rate in the history of our nation. More people died in 2022 than ever in the history of our nation. And it's kind of sobering when you begin to put it in that light, when you realize that we're supposed to be coming into an era where the advancements of science and technology are so far ahead that they're extending our lifetimes. But in reality, there are so many things that can interrupt it and cut it short. So that as the scripture clearly notes, 
No one, he says in Ecclesiastes 8, has authority over the day of his death. Most of us understand that. In fact, it's only God who knows about our birth and our death. As he says, as Job puts so simply in Job 14, he said, man's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits that he cannot exceed. I mean, that's an amazing thought that there is an X on some date in the calendar that is the day in which your life will come to an end. And I, I know there's some people who don't like to hear those kind of things. They would wish I could move on to something different because it makes them very uncomfortable contemplating the moment of the death. But what we have to understand, and part of the reason why I call, call it Sunday always falls Friday, that Friday is a day marked by the death of Christ. We call it Good Friday because it wasn't good for him, but it was really good for us. That where would we be if he had not come, if he had not died, if he had not made that sacrifice to redeem me from my sins? But knowing that Christ died on the cross has little value if it doesn't bring you to a point where you receive the risen Christ who comes on Sunday morning. So that in one perspective, it's interesting because we were praying this morning, a group of us, and and one of the things that that just came to my mind as we were praying is that for the child of God, the man or woman who has had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, every day is Easter. Every day I enter again into the reality of a risen Christ who gave his life so that I might have life. That he paid the price so that I would not have to pay the price. Because death is this unescapable destination that follows all of our lives. It's all around us. And in fact, Samuel put it very simply when he said, it's God who brings life and it's God who brings death. And that really struck me one day when I was reading uh, John 14 and Jesus was saying, I go to prepare a place for you. And he says, if it wasn't so, I never would have said it. And then he adds, I will come back and I will take you to be with me. And suddenly it hit me. We don't just die. What happens is God determines I'm going to come at some moment in time and take you because I want you to be with me. And that's really the full story of the resurrection. That he built a bridge across a large crevasse that we could never cross over. We couldn't walk it, we much less build it, and yet he did all of that, and then he went across and came back and takes us to be with him. That's the reality of being born again. But as I said, statisticians all agree that you and I have a mere 923 months, roughly 4,000 weekends, of course, unless you're Bernie, then you get one extra. It's no wonder that James cautioned when he said in James 4.14, what is your life? It's a, a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Or as Job put it even more sourly, he said, man born of woman is few days. He springs up like a flower, he withers away, and like a fleeting shadow, he does not endure. You know, I'm reminded of how true that is every day I look in the mirror. I'm withering away. But I'm reminded of one time, uh, Herbert uh, 
a guy was interviewing a man on the TV. He was 90, it was 100 years of age, and he asked him, well, what was the secret of your long life? And he said, well, it was simple. Good cigars, good whiskey. He said, my brother never drank or smoked a day in his life, and he died at 96. <laughs> By the way, that's, I'm not, that's not a medical prescription. I'm not prescribing medicine here for you. But what we realize is that death is this kind of irresistible force of nature. That we may quibble about the length of days and the quality of life, but this unavoidable reality, this unalterable truth that every biological life will come to an end, that your soul will still exist outside of your body. I know there are people who are saying, well, you're dead, and once you're dead, you're dead. And that's because when somebody has died, they've asked them, what's it like to be dead? They don't tell us anything, so we realize there must not be anything there. But the simple fact is that we also intuitively know, don't we not? That there is something inside of us that is greater than just the body itself. I remember talking to my father on his deathbed, and he was saying to me, he says, I don't understand it. In my mind, I'm still 21, but my body will not obey any of my commands. And I think many of us understand that now, you know. I mean, there used to be a time when, I remember one time when my wife fell on the ice on the driveway and without thinking, I, I jumped and I went running to her rescue. The problem was I was wearing a bathrobe with my shorts underneath it and my slippers. And when I hit the ice, I went straight up, came down, broke three, three uh, ribs next to the spine in excruciating pain. And as I'm trying to crawl up this icy driveway to get back to where my wife is now having blood running down her face because her lunch, which was a can of tuna, had hit her in the nose. And we're laying out there, and, and my thought is the neighbors are going to look at it and think we got in a fight. <laughs> and I lost. You see, these things happen suddenly and unexpectedly. And now today, I, I, I'm so much wiser because... If she falls and does that again, I'm not going to go running to her because I don't think I can anymore. <laughs> Let me get my walker. I'll be there in a minute. <laughs> These are sobering, humble things that we like to joke about and we like to laugh about. But every one of us has a view of what death is. And I figured out it kind of falls into kind of four categories. I mean, you have the materialistic view, which says that man has no soul, he has no spirit, there's no afterlife. Essentially, we're just in the process of becoming compost. It reminded me of a poem I read years ago by Wally McRae. Wally McRae was that weird genre of cowboy poets, and he was quite good. Uh, and he wrote this one poem, he called it Reincarnation. I don't know if you've heard it, I'll read it to you so that you can say that yes, one day you heard it. It begins, he says, what does reincarnation mean? A cowpoke asked his friend. His pal replied, it happens when your life reached its end. They comb your hair, they wash your neck and clean your fingernails and lay you in a padded box away from life's travails. The box and you goes in a hole that's been dug into the ground. And reincarnation starts when you're placed neath a mound. Them clods melt down just like your box and you who is inside, and then you're just beginning on your transformation ride. 
In a while, the grass will grow up upon your rendered mound till someday on your moldered grave a lonely flower is found. And say a hoss should wander by and graze upon this flower that was once you, but now has become your vegetative bower. The posy that that hoss done ate up and with other feed makes bone and fat and muscle essential to the steed, but some of it is left that he can't use and so it passes through and finally lays upon the mound. This thing that was once you, and then by chance I wandered by and I seized this upon the ground and I ponders and I wonders at this object that I've found. I think of reincarnation, of life and death and such, and come away concluding, Slim, you ain't changed all that much. <laughs> That's hardly the idea that reincarnations is hold to. But there are many who see that. We will just molder and become part of the dust. We'll, be, we'll merge with those 60 chemicals that make up your body and lie in the ground and that will be the end of it. The reincarnationist, though, is more common because when people believe in reincarnation, they believe that when you die, you will come back and you'll enter into this endless cycle and progression basically based upon your moral and ethics in this life. And if you've been a good person, you'll come back as something better than what you are now. Uh, maybe like one of the Kardashians or something. But if you've been, led a bad life, you come back as Bruce. I mean, it's a cycle of life. <laughs> and when you begin to think about it, none of us ever really is good enough to really move up to the next tier. <laughs> and so as I think about if this were true, I've got a long journey downhill. Well, it doesn't really work because the idea is that you will just eventually evolve till you enter into the universal consciousness of self-forgetfulness that you will lose your identity and you'll be gone. But here again, there's something within us that militates against that. There's something that says there's an eternal dynamic inside of me and it's one of those things I realized is recently I was showing some photos from my earlier years in life, you know, when, when back when I was a hippie and I had a big head of hair. I looked like a Q-tip. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I hardly look like that anymore. I mean, and I don't mean that in any kind of positive sense. I may be cleaner, but I'm not in better shape. And yet I feel the same inside like my dad said. There's something about the eternal dimension of who we are on the inside that never ages, that it stays the same forever. It's always aware of itself. And I often say to people who say, well, you know, you just go into the dust. I said, can you really honestly conceive of yourself not existing? I mean, sit down and just think about it. I'm gonna think for a moment that I no longer exist. And then you sit there and think about your non-existent self for a long time. And the fact is, you cannot conceive of such a thing. Because what God says is he has put inside of you, he's put eternity inside of your heart. And aware that the dimensions that we see in the material world are very limited, and there are things that exist behind it. Physicists say there's probably at least 13 different dimensions of reality out there. And to think about how does that work in, in, in this world, well, 
I mean, it's very funny because if we lived in a two-dimensional world, I could put a pencil on the ground, and when I stepped over the top of it, I would disappear because you wouldn't have the dimension of height. In the same way, when the disciples are sitting in the upper room Sunday night, having several times rejected any testimony or statement that anybody had seen Jesus, they there was nonsense, he isn't risen, and then all of a sudden, this empty room is filled with another person. Jesus just appears, and the reality is he has stepped from the reality beyond our perception into the present moment. And he begins to reveal to us by his very resurrection that there's more out there than we can comprehend. There is dimensions of reality that exist far beyond anything that we can know. But God has put us in the limited world of time. And I used to dislike time because I thought all it's doing is aging me until one time I realized that were it, were it not for time, I could never repent. You see, I would never be able to utter the th nine most important words that any married man or woman needs to learn. I was wrong. Please forgive me. And there's something else and I can't remember. <laughs> it's an age-related dynamic. Uh, this is what happened when I get off script. Anyway. But the reincarnation sees themselves as an endless cycle, and, 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 and yet they don't conceive of themselves not existing. They think that they're going to exist in some other place in some other form because they can't handle the idea that maybe it's given once to man to live and then to die. Then there's the universalist, or I call them the annihilist. I, I call it the, you know, the Disney world theology, that all dogs go to heaven. I mean... Stephen Turner in his poem Creed had a line in it that I think was quite applicable. He says, if death is not the end, then it's compulsory heaven for all, except for Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. And it's interesting because you, you say to people, well, I believe that everybody gets to heaven in the end. Then you ask them the question, well, then do you think that you're going to be roommates with Adolf Hitler or Genghis Khan or, you know, I mean, Vladimir Putin? I mean, what do you anticipate is going to be the environments and, and those who are there with you. And almost everybody will say, well, no, they're not going to be there. And I would ask them the question, so how do you make that decision? Who gets to go to heaven? You're obviously saying some people don't. What is the distinctive? What is the thing that separates? And that's really where the Bible comes in to give clarity. When the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9:27, man is destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. Now, that's, that's a loaded word for a lot of us. But I think we need to understand it was the very haunting specter of mankind, you and me, facing judgment based upon what we have done or what we have not done that really motivated Jesus to become a man, to die on the cross, and to be raised on the third day. He had to open up a doorway for us because we couldn't open it for ourselves. And there, there's this inveterate part of us that we don't seem to be able to escape. We want somehow to prove our worthiness. We talk about the search for significance and doing something value. I was talking with a, uh, a retired pro football player, a quarterback for one of the local teams, and I was explaining to him, I said, you know, I don't like to talk about it, but I could have gone all pro 
And he got that look in his face like, oh, one of those, you know? <laughs> yeah, I said, all I lacked was talent, skill, and ability. If I could have gotten those three things, I could have gone all the way. Well, the simple fact is that I know I will never be able to play basketball like Michael Jordan. In fact, I'll never be able to play basketball like one of my grandkids. There are certain things that are just beyond the realm of capacity. I was telling the guys between service that I had was serving on a staff with a guy who had been a semi-pro tennis player. And I thought I was a pretty good tennis player at the time. And so I goaded him and goaded him to, to go out and play around with me. And I never did that again because it was one of the most humiliating experiences I've ever been through. His skill level was so far beyond anything that I could even imagine that I realized I should just keep my big mouth shut. But yet at the same time, when we talk about how that when we get to heaven, we're going to stand before God and we're going to say, well, you know, I haven't been perfect, but I'm a pretty good guy. You don't realize you've just gone from the, the back courtyard to the pros. That God demands one thing for salvation, and that's perfection. And perfection is something that I'm not. I will say I'm perfectly imperfect, but perfection is not something I possess. So what did God do? He stepped into that void by him who was the perfect one, who came and became a man, and he lived with us, and he, he suffered with us, he endured us, but he did it without sin. He did it without anger or hatred or jealousy or pride or envy or all those things that are part and parcel of your and my everyday life. And he laid his life down because he said, God has demanded a perfect sacrifice. And he gave his life. And he said, there's only one thing required. <laughs> Believe on me. Just believe on me. Believe that I paid what you can't pay for. Believe that I took the sting of death on your behalf so that the specter of growing old and dying or being suddenly taken out of this world doesn't terrorize you or cause you to lay awake at night or make you so indulge yourself in some kind of distraction that you don't think about it, but you recognize that when that day comes, it's not that I just die or molder away or disappear, but he will come and take me to be with him. Now, I know this isn't people's favorite topic. That's why we never sell tickets to get into funerals. Most people, I find, struggle with funerals. It used to be in the past, before it became so cost prohibitive for many people, to have a casket up front and it would be open and people would walk by and they would say kind of weird stuff like, look, he looked like he's almost alive. Doesn't he look realistic? <laughs> I think to myself, give it a week. You know? <laughs> but I noticed that most people, when they come down to view the casket, would stay as close to the pew and as far away from the body as they possibly could. They just kind of skirt by and... Because the very thought that one day they're going to get a chance to be in that same box is just so terribly uncomfortable. And what we miss in all of that is that we were not created for time 
we were created for eternity. So God put us in a time-based vessel called our bodies that's subject to all the entropic effects of the time-based world. You know, entropy, which says everything goes from a state of order to disorder, that's called the aging process for most of us. That God has put us in this body, but what is in us is in itself eternal and everlasting. And the real central question is, where are we going to spend that eternity? You see, Jesus talked more than any other writer in the New Testament or Old Testament about heaven and hell. And it's interesting to me that even that topic is beginning to get fuzzy in our conversations. I, there's a commercial I was watching the other day, and it said, where are you going, heaven or not? I thought, what? <laughs> heaven or not? <laughs> and I thought to myself, did the marketing team say, we can't say hell? That'll turn them off. They'll not pay any more attention to it. But I thought, I've read my Bible many times, and I've never heard Jesus ever say heaven or not. It's almost as if we have a choice to go be with God or just join Slim. <laughs> but here's some things we need to keep in mind when Jesus talked about heaven. That first and foremost, he said it was a real place. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he says, you know the way. He said, I am the way the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's why I told the thief on the cross, he said, this day you will be with me in paradise. And that the word in the original language, paradise, it's, it's a loan word from the Persians. That's what they described a beautiful garden. And when you live in the desert, any place that has trees and waters and anything green and living is, is considered to be paradisical. But they came to refer to it as that place where somebody experiences absolute, unending bliss and joy and pleasure and delight and blessedness. That's why in Matthew 25, 23, Jesus said that when people enter into heaven after having given their life to him, that he says to them, enter into the, and share the joy, the delight, the blessedness of your master. It's an amazing thing to think about if you're a Christian that when your body, your soul leaves your body and you find yourself in the presence of the living God, he's gonna look at you and he's not gonna ask you what you did or didn't do because the only reason you're gonna be there is because you have believed on his son, Jesus Christ. And he's just gonna look at you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And I know what's going to happen. I, I know the first words out of your mouth, if there are words in our mouths in heaven. Sometimes I read descriptions of heaven in the book of Revelation. I think, what, what is there to say? But I know I'm going to look and say, God, all of this for me? This is mine? You see, it's this amazing thing that God says not only is a blessed place, it's a wondrous place, so wondrous that it exceeds our wildest imaginations. When Paul talked about after he'd been stoned to death at Lystra, and he writes in 2 Corinthians 12 about dying and going to heaven, and he says, I saw things that are 
inexpressible. In fact, he said it would be a crime to try to put them into words. And this is something that, you know, kind of beggars our imagination sometimes because think about heaven being this place where he said, there isn't a vocabulary in the material world that we live in that can anyway begin to even grasp the splendiferousness of what it means to be in heaven. And I think this is important for us to begin to grasp or get our minds around because we live in such a fear of losing the best things that we have in this life that we don't realize that the only way we can experience the best things that God has for us is by letting go of the things that we're clinging to. That we have to leave this life so that when two men were talking about a wealthy friend who had just passed away, he, one of them said to the other, well, how much did he leave behind? And his answer was, all of it. <laughs> and I, I've contemplated that a lot. You look around your, your, your setting, your environment, your, your home, those things that you collect. I have some collectibles in my home, some things I count very precious. I've got a 1603 uh, leather-bound volume of the Geneva Bible that's worth more than I am. And somebody gave it to me as a gift, showing how silly they were. And yet I realize even the Bible is not going to go with me into heaven. Even a 1603 leather-bound Geneva Bible. That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, no eye has ever seen no ear has ever heard, no mind has ever conceived what God has prepared for them. But fourthly, I would say this, that heaven is a choice. And that's the part I think that we need to get honest about. Because many of us feel like, well, obviously heaven is for anybody, and it is potentially, but it's a choice that we make. And some people say, well, it's not fair. I think we're the last ones who should ever talk about fair, Right? We cheat even at parlor games, so we shouldn't talk about fair. The simple matter is that if somebody says, I'm not interested in the love of God, I'm not interested in what Jesus did for me, that has no importance to me, I'm just going to live my life the way I want to live it, then God says, well, if you won't say my will be done, then I will let your will be done. I'll let you go into eternity without me. And that's the thing that's really, I think, more scary that here again, Jesus, 11 different times in the Gospels, talked about the other alternative, the other choice. He called it hell. That again, he tells us in Matthew 25 that it's a very real and a very literal place. He said, depart from me who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, theologians argue, well, is it literally fire? Are we literally burning? And if we're immaterial, how can we feel the pain of burning? Well, I, I'll tell you what my opinion is. I think that because burning is the most painful thing that we can experience because it, it assaults the nerves on so many levels and there's no stopping the pain that God wanted to say, I want you to understand that hell is a place where there's ever-ending torment. I can only imagine what it must be like to die and, and see the face of Jesus and see the doors of heaven open and see the joy and the blessedness and the, the rewards that are there and then instantaneously 
know that you will not ever see anything or experience anything like that again. I've had people say to me, well, I want to go to hell because that's where all my friends are. And you may be right. I mean, I'm not saying that's incorrect. But it's not a place where you hang out. There's no party in hell. (laughs) It's a place that he describes as being a place of everlasting torment. He says, hell where the fire never goes out, where their worm, that literally rotting corruption, does not die and the fire is not quenched. He describes it as a place of everlasting torment. And I don't know how a spirit or a soul can be tormented other than the fact that many of us have been tormented in our souls through loss and through loneliness and through betrayal. And we know how devastating that pain is. I often tell people who have never been seriously depressed, you have no idea how much pain the soul can feel when you're in a state of depression. But what may be more frightening is there's no hint or suggestion that hell in any way is a temporary or escapable place. But lastly, hell also is a choice. Jesus expressed it very clearly. He says in John 3, I I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. That everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. In in the original, that's actually using the word in a metaphorical sense, to, to give over to eternal misery in hell. God doesn't want anybody to go there. But he wants us to have eternal life, not eternal death. But then he adds, whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed, which literally means to entrust oneself fully to, in the name of God's one and only Son. Therefore, he says, this is the verdict. (laughs) We're talking about dying and being in judgment. There's a verdict that's rendered. You're in judgment, and there's a verdict that's rendered for every soul that goes into eternity. And he says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. You know, we humans have an incredible way of lying to ourselves about important things. I often have the opportunity to talk with people who are struggling with all sorts of Sadly, bad behaviors, bad choices. They become addicted to one thing or another. They make decisions that they later regret. But often I found the people who are addicted, they say to me, I don't know why I keep on doing this. I don't know why I keep on choosing this over and over again. And I see that as my wondrous opportunity to spoil their day. I'll tell you, it said, I know exactly why you keep on doing it. Why, as Peter said, you're like a dog who returns to his vomit or like a pig that keeps on going and wallowing in the mire. I know exactly why you do it. You love it. You love it more than what God said should be the theme of your life. And until we're willing to admit that to ourselves, that I am inherently sinful, The sin isn't something that I trip up in unaware once in a while. It defines my entire life. 
to be quite honest, as I stand here today and I'm speaking these things to you, what is the sobering reality for me is how I can look at a room that's stuffed full of people and think, well, <laughs> you must be pretty special. And God has a way of saying, maybe Special Olympics, maybe specially dumb, but there's no moral measurement that we can stand up to and say, look at me, look what I've done. Someone once put it so well, they said, we never stand taller than we are when we are prostate, prostrate. <laughs> Here I am talking about something that I no longer possess. <laughs> Want to see the scar? <laughs> You should see me go through TSA. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> anyway. But we never stand taller in God's eyes than when we're on our face in brokenness and humility before the cross of Christ. Here I am, Lord, I'm a sinner. And I'll be plagued by that sin nature my entire life. I will never get to a place where I've overcome this disposition that's so inherently operative in me. And the more I get to know you, the more I realize that your word is true, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the better I get, the more distance I see I have fallen. And in that moment of humiliation and honesty with God, we can only say, God have mercy upon me for I am a sinner. And Jesus said, that's the person he sees. The eyes of God are going to and fro across the face of the earth. What is he looking for? He's looking for men and women who will simply humble themselves. When I look at our, our, our country today and I realize that there seems to be this mindset in our rulers, our regime or whatever, that they can never say, I was wrong. They can never say, I'm sorry. But they have to constantly pretend that they've done nothing wrong. And even when they've done things wrong, it's actually right. And many of us operate on that same basis. We, we don't ever say to anybody else, would you please forgive me? I'm sorry. But that's where the relationship with God begins. When I become aware that I'm not a great guy, that I'm not this wonderful person, but I'm a sinner who has fallen short of the glory of God and yet Christ has made a way for me. That's why the writer of Hebrews went on to say that Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time to those who are waiting for him. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? We wait for a lot of things. Some of you are waiting for me to finish. <laughs> Am I going to disappoint you? 
But we need to understand that the cross of Christ really represents a crossroad that every person must come, that we either fall on their face at the foot of the cross or we run away from it and refuse to face it. When Mel Gibson made the movie The Passion of the Christ, there was one aspect of it that I found was so wonderfully profound that he said when it comes to driving the, the spike into Christ's hands, he said, I want to take a, use my hand, my arm. And I thought, because he said, he died for me. He died for me. That spike was for me. That's why he said, the wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. The Bible's really clear. There's no middle road. There's no third, fourth, fifth option. That even nonsensical statements like, well, all paths lead to the same summit. Well, you'll find that those who climb mountains would not agree with that. <laughs> all paths do not lead to the same place. That's just normal. Saying it does is just more that Eastern imaginative theological pablum that people buy because they don't really want to think deeply about their own eternity. To ignore Christ is to reject Christ and choose to be, as Jesus warned, cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's why when the women came to the tomb that morning, they were coming out of a state of despair, depression, and duty. They saw the one that they loved and admired the most and had followed. They saw him die and expire on the cross. And they saw his body taking off the cross and they saw some rich guys take it and cleanse it and lather it with all sorts of sweet-smelling fragrances and wrap it in the cloth and carry it off and put it in a tomb and roll the stone, this massive two or 3,000-pound stone across the entranceway so that nobody could get in it. They saw the soldiers put a seal on it so that nobody would be able to break it without terrible consequences. They rose early that morning, I think, because they probably couldn't sleep. And they came with their paltry offerings of ointments to put on his body. The idea was you perfume the body so that you could stay next to it for a longer period of time. When Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days, they said, don't roll the stone away. I love the King James. He stinketh. I mean, he said, it's, it's me a stench. So they would put these perfumes on so they could extend the amount of time that they could mourn and stay with the dead, the dead body. And so they knew that after <laughs> two nights in the grave that it would be decayed, the stench would be strong. And yet when they came, they found the stone rolled away. The guards had run away, and in their place they found these individuals dressed in white, 
and all aglow and asking them a very simple question. Why do you look for life among the dead? It is not here. It is with the risen one. And that's kind of my question, my my closing question for, for you to contemplate. When you look at the way you're making decisions and choices, the trajectory of your personal life, are you trying to find that ultimate fulfillment in the place where there's nothing but death? Are you looking for life among the dead? Because when I look around this room, you know one thing I realize? It's just a matter of time before you're a corpse. You're most welcome. (laughs) But the good news is, you can do something about that. By believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, not only will you leave this body and go to heaven, but he will give you a new body like unto his immortal body that will last forever and ever. It's a really a great deal. And one thing I realize about Spokenites, we love great deals. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, I ask that you would help us to connect and tune our hearts to what is real and what is true and not to follow after some fleeting vanity. That we live in a world that is inundated with images and ideas and concepts and beliefs and ideologies all competing for the souls, the hearts, and the minds of men and all promising if you walk this way, you'll find what you're looking for and yet none of them have the ability to deliver. That even that rare group of us who somehow will manage to rise to the top of whatever mountain we're trying to climb, that when we get to the top of the mountain, we are left with that nagging question, is this all there is? It doesn't satisfy. Lord, help us to remember that we were not created for time that we were created for eternity and that thing that yearns for us for ultimate fulfillment and joy and glory and wondrousness is really the soul yearning to be eternally connected to its maker. Help us to surrender our life that that might happen, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name.